Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, Write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, It is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So, Paulo, that was um, Revelation 21, I believe 1 through 6. And it's kind of this future vision of um, basically God's good future, right? And so today uh, is the final episode of our biblical story series, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. I feel like we've been working on this for a long time, and we're exploring the the final book in the kind of sequence of the New Testament, which is Revelation. So yeah, man, I'm excited about this one. Both you and I, I think, have done quite a bit of just research and refreshing our memory on just everything Revelation. And just to give our listener a track, I think we'll talk about a bit of the context, a bit of the main themes of Revelation, and then kind of go through the narrative as the book um, describes it as well but yeah man do you have any opening thoughts you want to share yes so yeah welcome everybody this is revelation the most uh, spoken of is that a saying bible in the book everybody's t- talking about revelation apocalypse but no one knows yes. everyone i feel like it's probably the most misunderstood or maybe even ignored book because of its kind of confusing imagery right did you read the books uh, the books that they ended up making a movie. Of the Left Behind. Yeah. No, I never read the books, but I watched the movie. I read the first two books. Okay. Um, I think I started the third one. So one day I was in beta. I was doing journalism work there. And then I went to the market. And this guy was selling all six books okay. from that series. And he was selling them, I would say, probably 10 pula each. So I just grabbed all of them. Okay, nice. Let's go. So I took them. Yeah, so yeah, they're fun to read. Yeah, and I think, you know, you touch on that series. And for the last hundred years or so, obviously the books were written before a hundred years ago or so. But the rapture, the idea of this rapture, which is kind of the main theme of, of that book, is kind of the... Uh, popular imagination, but more so kind of the, the Left Behind series in a way became strange enough like the form, formulative picture I think people had in their mind what the book of Revelation was talking about. And I don't believe the author would even say, he would say it's a work of fiction, right? He wouldn't say that this is his actual interpretation of what might happen. But I think there is a ton of confusion on like what exactly is Revelation, right? Um, and so to begin with, the word apocalypse, which is kind of the word used for, is literally to mean to uncover or to reveal, right? So revealing something that wasn't known before. And so revelation is kind of the English translation of that, right? An unveiling, you have a revelation. 
And this happens a lot. It doesn't just happen in the book of Revelation, but it's following kind of the prophetic um, narrative, right? So Isaiah has a vision, a revelation of God's throne room. Ezekiel has the vision of the dry bones, right? Becoming flesh again. And this is a revelation, a revealing of what God is going to do, right? His purposes, what what is behind the curtain, right? In the heavenly realms. And so revelation gets its name because it's kind of an a revealing of the heavenly reality behind what the audience of the book of Revelation is experiencing. And we'll get into who is the audience of the Revelation, the book of Revelation um, as well. But I think... Yeah, the thing is, I just opened Oxford definition of the word apocalypse, which is the end of the world as described in the Bible. Yeah, so even Oxford isn't capturing what the original Greek is meant. But I think what you've just read is exactly what people think revelation or apocalypse means. That it's a description of the end of the space-time continuum or whatever, of reality itself. But that's not what the original Greek uh, meant. It meant a revealing or an uncovering. But I think that's an important note to say that like words and their definitions over time get co-opt or they change, right? Just like... The funniest kind of one, maybe it's a bit vulgar to say, but like gay. Gay meant happy, right? In its original context, but now it has a completely different meaning. No one would go around and say, I'm gay when they meant that I'm happy, right? That's conveying a totally drastically different meaning than its original intention. Um, and that's what happens with words, right? Over time. And so we have, I think we have to, again, do the homework to become aware. What does it mean in its original context, kind of what we talked about before we even started this series. We can't transpose Revelation into our own day. We have to understand what was Revelation saying to its actual audience. So maybe that's where we can dive into next is who was the audience of Revelation? The book tells us um, right off the bat who this, who this letter is being written to. So do you want to go into that? So uh, according to John, John is the one who wrote the book. In this island called Patmos and he says he was in an exile because of preaching the gospel of God so he gets these letters that he's supposed to send to these seven churches which are oh yes with these seven churches in Asia Minor so if you look at the map you will see that the churches are positioned if you were to go through Asia Minor, so the road, if you were to follow the road, you follow each one of these churches. Exactly. So these churches, so it's these seven churches that is supposed to write to them and to write everything that he's seeing and he's hearing to those churches. Yeah, I think it's really important to note two, two things uh, as a remembrance from our last episode. Asia Minor is actually Western Turkey. The Western half of Turkey is not somewhere near China or Mongolia or something. Um, and then two, the idea, the number seven, so numbers, images, picture language is a huge, huge, huge part of Revelation and what I think makes Revelation so complicated to understand. But even the idea of seven, you know, John is writing to these specific churches but the number seven is the number of perfection or completion. And so there is an understanding that this letter was going to get passed around. This revelation was going to go beyond just these seven churches. Um, but these seven churches play a archetype of the different struggles of the church in that day. And we'll talk a little bit about what exactly 
were those churches facing? Um, and if you read the book of Revelation, it's clear what a lot of them were facing. But they were all facing different circumstances. It wasn't, you know, a lot of times people have taken this up as purely persecution. But some of these churches were benefiting from the situation that they were in. And because of that beneficial relationship, they were compromising on the gospel. And so Jesus had a specific word to them. So really, these unique situations, I think, can really capture a lot of the the multiple problems that churches both in John's day and in our day can face, right? Both compromise, standing firm through persecution and trusting, um, and also having, you know, certain issues within the church that need to get dealt with or returning back to our first love, right? Yeah. Yes. And each church kind of, they have their own problem that they're going through and they have an exhortation. And then after this exhortation, they have what is the promise of God if they obey. I think the, the only different one is Philadelphia because that one, there is no problem that is really highlighted in the book. I feel that's why in Mozambique we have a lot of ministries called Philadelphia. Exactly. So yeah, but the churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum. Uh, that one is hard. Sardia, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The other one is T H Y A T I R R. We'll call it the T Church. <laughs> yes, the T Church. Uh, yeah. yeah. I'd say Taitira, maybe. Taitira, Tiatira. In Portuguese, it's Tiatira. Tiatira. Okay, we'll just call it the Portuguese name because it's not like anyone's going to know that. <laughs> so, anyways, so John's writing to these churches. So, I think it's really important to note that Revelation is kind of three things it's an apocalyptic or unveiling, uncovering prophecy. So, it's a prophetic word given to the churches. And we talked about the Old Testament prophets, how they were both speaking to their own day about the current issues that Israel faced, but also painting a picture of God's good future and promises that he wasn't going to leave them or abandon them. That is the prophetic kind of uh, themes that John is picking up on. And then it's also a circular letter, like Paul's letters, that were meant to go from church to church, be read aloud, which I think is another important thing. You know, we all have our personal Bibles, but the printing press didn't exist back then. So a lot of the picture images are meant to almost capture the listener's minds in a story and powerful imagery way, right? That imagery in pictures uh, can sometimes be painted in a better way than just reading it on a paper if it's being read aloud. So anyway, so it's a, again, apocalyptic prophecy that's a circular letter to these churches, right? Um, so basically, let's talk about maybe what does it mean to be an apocalyptic literature, a prophetic literature, and then a letter, right? We can touch on that briefly. So yes, apocalyptic, because it's revealing what is God's view uh, when it comes to the problem that they were facing on yeah. earth. So in the Bible, there is this idea that there is a heaven and there is earth and then the heaven is where God is ruling. And there, the vision of how everything is going on here, it's different than the way we see everything. Because once you go there, it's imagine looking to a city uh, from a high mountain. 
the way people see things down there it's way different than the way you will see things up there so that's why the heaven even the garden of eden it's portrayed as being on top of the mountain heaven it's kind of these space above the earth that looks down and see everything that is going on so it's apocalyptic in the way that god is taking john to that place and say hey look what i see how i see all the problems that are going on i see that behind the roman empire action there is someone there is a bad spirit that is making them do that or that is influencing them to do all these acts so that's why you have all this uh, spiritual being, all these different f- images and all these light stands, yeah. because it's a different way of seeing the problem, of seeing what's yeah. going on on the earth. And I think it's important to note that Revelation actually tells us who these lampstands are, right? It, yes. Jesus says they are the church. Um, and then, is it the lampstand? I get that mixed up. There's one that's the church and then the, the angels of those churches. So again, it's like this picture of the earthly reality or the earthly representative and then there's a spiritual dynamic to that earthly reality Um, and I think you bring up a great point in the sense of John is not so much getting a vision of like a fortune teller he is seeing history and time and empires and the church's struggle from God's perspective what is happen- What is God's viewpoint on what is happening in the world, right? And we'll, we'll get into that more, um, but let's jump into the prophetic. So the prophetic aspect is both like speaking into the current situation, so seeing what is going on in the church, the struggles that they're facing, the, the things that they're compromising with, but then also giving a future vision of what God will do to make things right. You know, for some John is giving the heavenly perspective and prophetic warning that you can't compromise with the whore of Babylon, right? And we'll talk about what that means and what that is. But like you're compromising and this is who you're compromising with. And with others, your suffering and your endurance is not going unheard, right? The martyrs under the altar crying out to God. Um, But God will do something about it. Your suffering is not in vain. From God's perspective, he is patiently waiting. Uh, and so there's that prophetic aspect of like calling out what John sees, but more importantly, what Jesus sees, you know what I mean, within the church itself. And then the last is the letter. Yes. So the letter, just like you said, uh, we have the Pauline letters that he sent to churches. And those letters were supposed to be read out loud to the church. And sometimes they would come and address a specific problem going on in that place and give the church the teaching about how to solve these problems. So that's why this is contextual. So I think the part of the letter is what makes, makes the book of Revelation contextual in the sense that it was sent to specific places, specific churches to solve each problem that those specific churches were facing. And so that gets into the imagery, right, aspect of Revelation. Revelation has more picture, more coded language than any other book in the Bible, right? And that this picks up on what's called apocalyptic literature because there's more than just Revelation. Um, But Revelation has more imagery than even those books. But a lot of it has to do with um, when when we say the contemporary world, we're talking about the first century, right? The time in which John and these seven churches in Asia live. Many, 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 not many, all of the images 
are pulled from that context. So what I mean is oftentimes when I've heard Revelation getting read and it's talking about the locusts coming out of the pit, you know what I'm saying? People try and assume that it was actually talking about helicopters or, you know what I mean? Like they're trying, and I think that's a natural reaction because we always want to contextualize things within our own world. And we often think of the Bible as this book that's meant to always speak to us directly from page to life um, without any sort of context or translation, how it can apply to our own lives in our own day. Um, but we have to remember that like John is speaking to a specific people, right? He's speaking to these seven churches. And so some of the images that he's using are trying to remind them of the Exodus story where God poured out his plagues, his judgment on Egypt. We also have to understand like how they viewed their world, what were the issues of their day. John is using all of these images that would be readily available in their minds to draw their attention to something, right? So um, a great example, and I wanted to save this later, but I think it's a good example, is Babylon the whore, right? So first of all, Babylon is an the empire that put the Jews in exile. It is seen as like the ultimate enemy of the people of God, right? Because they, are, because of their pride, because of their power, because of their wealth, they took captive the people of God. You know what I'm saying? And Babylon goes back to Babel, you know, in one of our very first episodes, the, the city of human pride that tried to defy the purposes of God, right? By building their own tower. So John is using the archetype of empire power, of refusal to acknowledge God as the creator of all things, of the Lord of Lords, because all these empires, their main tool is to deify themselves, to, to put themselves in the place of ultimate power. So Rome is just another archetype of this kind of empire system that tries to deify itself. So anyways, the whore of Babylon... Roma was the kind of seen as the mother goddess of the city of Rome. Um, and so John, from the world's perspective, this woman, the goddess Roma, is a symbol of Roman power, of Roman prestige, of Roman beauty and wealth. But John is taking this image that people would already have in their mind and he's saying, but from God's perspective, he sees a whore, right, that gets drunk on the blood of the nations. So what John is doing is taking an image that had symbolism and meaning and totally flipping it on its head to reveal what heaven's perspective is on it. So that's just one of, you know, probably hundreds of examples of the imagery of Revelation making a critique of the current situation by using pictures that people would understand. But if we don't, you know, for us, we don't think about the goddess Roma. That's not like even in, in our worldview because Rome doesn't exist anymore. Um, and so we we oftentimes take that and then we run with it and make it whatever we want. But that's not what the Bible or the images in Revelation are doing, right? Yes. yes. And I think Hebrew and Greek, they didn't have a lot of vocabulary. So this image, they would say a lot of things without even saying those things. 
So that's why I feel like the even the image of seven when has the symbol of completeness. Seven churches to represent the whole churches in the world. Seven bowls to represent the all seven uh, acts of judgment, the completeness of the judgment of God. And then we have the seven trump, uh, trumpets also to represent that. This, the five, uh, we'll talk about this in more details. So if you look at these languages, they use all these uh, image to say a lot of things just uh, before without even saying it in words so i think that's one thing we always tend to ignore when we're reading the bible we put our perspective or point of view or the point of view of our language into that and we want to understand it according to what we see right now and that's why we end up having all these wrong uh, view of this book and I think what you said about the Roman Empire makes makes a lot of sense because we have to understand that the biggest it was the biggest empire yeah. uh, that it was the only empire ruling all that area and that's why we spoke about it on the acts that yeah. Paul Paul's goal was to get to Rome because he knew that once he get to Rome he gets to the heart of all those places and that's where the kingdom would reach all the communities. And in the sense, going to the city where the king of Rome or Caesar is claiming to be a divine figure, right? To legitimize what he's doing in a sense. Um, and even like this idea of imagery, you know, the thing that I wanted to avoid was going off too much into all the specific images, but even the idea of an army coming from the east, right? Part of it was in the beast that was wounded and then comes back to life. Uh, in this time period, there was an emperor named Nero that was killed and, and claimed to be divine himself. But there was rumors that he would come back to life and lead an army from Parthia from the east. So Rome's great enemy was the Parthians. They could never really beat them. They always struggled to kind of keep them you know, outside of their borders or the edge of their empire. And so one of the great paranoias at this time period was that Nero was somehow going to come back and lead thousands upon thousands of Parthians and basically take over the Roman Empire. So John picks up, he's not saying that this is what's going to happen through God's judgment, but he picks up on that cultural moment of tension and says these are the kind of things that God is going to use to bring judgment. You get what I'm saying? Um, that in a sense, he's saying empires like Rome, not just Rome, but all empires that are fueled by the Satan, the dragon, um, don't have the final word. Because in reality, the people who are living under these oppressive regime, regimes, yeah, um, people who are facing hardship and persecution, people who are facing um, the, the temptation to compromise, right? Like it's easy to see, even in our own day, I'll just pick on America, right? It's easy to just always picture Americans or uh, America being the ruling power, you know what I mean? And having their way whenever they want to. Um, but really the kingdom of God is the ultimate authority, not America, not Rome, not Russia, not you know whoever you wanna put the label on, uh, whoever is kind of in the power seat. Um, these guys who rule poorly or rule incorrectly or use their power for their own personal benefits, they will not have the final say ultimately, right? And so I think, it's important for us to understand Revelation isn't so much about 
a mystery future book that we're supposed to piece together to find out what God's going to do. God is already telling us what to do, which is to stand for the truth of his kingdom against any sort of power that would claim ultimate authority because ultimate authority ultimately belongs to God, right? Yeah. So I think just two other important notes before we move on. I think it's important to know that Revelation is a partial like previewing of what is to come. So there is a future aspect to it. I mean, that's clear as clear can be. Like I'm not saying there's no future revelation, but it's also partly clarifying to John's audience how the tragic events that they are currently going through fit into God's wider narrative of ultimate victory. Because you can feel really discouraged if you... You know, it's the age-old question, if Jesus is Lord, why do bad things happen? And John is trying to paint a picture of Revelation that the people of God suffering for truth is a partnership with God's ultimate victory, even though they might not see it where they're currently at, right? Yes, and that's a very important idea because we have to understand that God take John, John who he had, who had earthly view of everything that was going on he see his his friends dying he see people of his church being persecuted and being killed so in his point of view and i think it was in the point of view of most of the people in church back on that time is oh man we are losing we're just dying and we have to hide we have to go to exile like he was in exile we have to run away so we are losing people are being killed and what is the future of Christianity? What is the future of everything that we're doing? Is Are we going to lose this battle? So they had those questions. So God taking them to look in the heavenly um, view, it's God showing them like, no, you guys are not losing. If you want to look in an earthly way, you will think that you are losing. But if you look in my view, actually this is your victory whenever they persecute you whenever they kill you that's you winning that's you winning over the temptation of uh, being being compelled to act according to what the kingdom wants uh, on earth but once you say no i don't want to do that no i don't want to work that way and then even if you die when you die because you did that actually that's a big victory and with that victory you will have these rewards i will come and stamp my name on your forehead and all the other thing and you will be part of the the kingdom of god yeah and i think that's a huge i mean you said it perfectly because even the mark of the beast is just a counterfeit of a marking of a different kingdom right like who's essentially what john is trying to say is Whose kingdom mark are you going to receive? Are you going to compromise and benefit by, you know, the, by getting into bed with, you know, darkness and get darkness's kingdom stamp on you? Or are you going to get the kingdom of heaven? Are you going to endure? Are you going to stand for the truth, even if it costs you something? And I think what's really important, as we'll see in the throne room scene and throughout Revelation, it talks about sharing in the same witness to truth as Jesus. Yes. So the way that we conquer is by following the pattern of Jesus, which is standing for truth no matter what it costs, right? Believing that God's victory will come, that God will vindicate us, right? So we follow in that pattern for sure. So 
Uh, I don't want to get into all the details of the seven churches because if you read the book of Revelation, I think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah I think the churches are kind of the easiest way. Yeah, it's probably the, the most... Part, yeah, it's the easiest part of all the Revelation. There is one aspect that I want to talk about in Pergamum. It, so it says when Satan is enthroned, right? Uh, so one is expected to praise and worship, like, or basically they're saying in this city, Jesus saying the very place where Satan is enthroned. And I wanted to touch on that because what does that mean? You know what I mean? Why is it this one city? But what's interesting is uh, Pergamum is the place where there's an altar to Zeus, which would be the head god of like the Greek pantheon. And it's also a major center for the imperial cult. So for though this plays a huge role in the idea of revelation. Imperial cult is basically the religious system that was created by Rome to worship the emperor and empire. So it becomes a tool and a means to essentially uh, allow Roman power to become a, a divine religious aspect, not just like a political, um, not just, you know, we're the new bosses in town, but we are actually the divine authority over your life, right? And if you don't worship us, if you don't bow down to us, if you don't see us as, you know, king of kings and lord of lords, then, you know, you're no friend of the empire. And this is, you know, we don't have, you know, living in a free world for most of us. We don't have a place like that. You know what I mean? The closest thing that comes to mind is north korea <laughs> you know what i mean where it's like the king is literally worshipped as a god as the provider but this is what caesar is trying to do to get a stronger grip on his empire so in a sense it is a false religion created to feed the power and the wealth of rome right and to get people on board in a way more than just like oh yeah these guys are kind of the bosses around here but like no they're the gods around here um and so for this cult to be in that city jesus is literally calling it the throne of satan and i think what's really important again is to see it from heaven's perspective jesus isn't just looking at rome right rome is the archetype of all of these kind of empires that behind them there is an even darker more sinister power that wants to enslave human beings to the lie right this idea of the lie and jesus is calling his church to recognize the truth who is really the boss you know is it rome is it babylon is it whoever comes next in the history books or is it god is he the ultimate authority right um there's this great quote from a book called theology of revelation and it goes like this in a sense the whole book that is Revelation is about the way Christians of the seven churches may, by being victorious within the specific situations of their own churches, enter the New Jerusalem. While the book as a whole explains what the war is about and how it must be won, the message to each church alerts that church to what is specific about their section of the battlefield. And I think that is just a great summary of how we can take Revelation in our own day, in a sense that like all of us, whether it's Botswana, a church in North Korea, a church in America, a church in Europe and Asia, we all have different enemies or people, or, or not people, but different aspects that we have to wage war against in order to enter the new Jerusalem, in order to hear Jesus say, well done, you have conquered, right? The reward that he gives to each church is if they are able to conquer. Um, and so for us, we have to think where where is it that we need to fight? What is our battlefield as the church where we are? Um, 
for Americans, it might be not compromising with, you know, culture so easily. But for other countries, it might be enduring, you know, the persecution and suffering of what it means to follow Jesus. But all of us have a, a fight um, in this war against evil. Nice. So I think before we take our break, let's talk a little bit about the overarching themes. So I have, you know, the truth over the lie, witnessing to God's truth at any cost, like Jesus, Rome as an empire, and Babylon. We touched on these things. We talked about them a little bit, but maybe we can go in, into them a little bit in greater detail. And then from there, we'll kind of work through Revelation's narrative, maybe expedite it a little bit to the end. But um, I'm going to leave <laughs> I'm going to leave the bulls and the trumpets for you, bro. It sounds like you've been doing a little bit more research on. <laughs> so anyway, I, uh, one major theme is Babylon the Great. You'll see that over and over and over again. So Revelation at one level is a coded commentary on the greatness of Rome. So you can't just go around and saying say these things about Rome. It's going to get you killed pretty quickly. But it's a critique from heaven's point of view of what Rome's power and wealth and glory comes from. Really, you know, Pax Romana is the peace of Rome. So anytime Rome would conquer a place, they would say they were bringing Roman peace. Um, but there's a great quote that basically Roman's peace comes at, Rome comes and creates a devastation and calls it peace. So it's by violence, it's by theft, it's by destruction, the whole drunk on wine thing, right? That Rome is really like indulging itself. Um, we talked about kind of the Roma, the goddess, um, kind of as this representative whore, John flipping things on the other way around. So just as well, you know, the generations after John's and the generations that John is currently living in, they basically have a choice. Are they going to compromise with Babylon, the darkness that drives Babylon, or stand by the truth and possibly die because of it? And the imperial cult, again, this is the religious element. This was the divine worship of the Roman Empire. And... I think it's important too when we talk about the prophet, the false prophet. These are the people who are propagating, right? The church stand. So the two witnesses um, who stand in Jerusalem, right, and they basically speak out condemnation condemnations against Babylon. Essentially, it's meant to be the church, right, as a prophetic witness against the false prophet. Rome is sending out its prophets, saying, you know, you need to come to the imperial cult. You need to bow down at the altar of the emperor. But the church is meant to stand in the gap and say, no, like there is one God, there is one Lord. And even if you strike down the church or strike down its people, like God is going to vindicate them and raise them. You know what I mean? Um, anyways, do you have any thoughts before I keep rambling on here? <laughs> okay. So basically, Revelation becomes a mirror that we can hold up, right? Where have we compromised with the Babylon of our own day? Where have we become lukewarm? Where have we lost our passion? Where are, is the church suffering? Um, so essentially John to his audience is telling them like, you know, you need to display loyalty and worship to Jesus, not this empire or this power, this darkness that is trying to smash the world in. You know what I mean? Um, so he's encouraging this damn firm. Jesus promises that those who overcome Babylon and her temptations, right, will receive the crown of life, basically by testifying to the truth. What's so interesting is when Jesus comes in and it says, you know, the sword, the double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth, Jesus doesn't actually strike. It's his judgment, which is the truth. Jesus is a professor of truth. 
and those who are not willing to live under the truth are actually condemned by the truth. The truth either can set you free or the truth can condemn you, right? That's why it's a double-edged sword. If you stand for the truth, truth becomes the liberating force that brings life. But if you stand opposed to truth, truth becomes essentially the, the gavel of judgment that falls on you because God's truth will prevail. And it's just interesting that Revelation always depicts God's enemies as ardently opposing God's truth, God's way of looking at reality, God's purpose for creation. And in a sense, God's judgment is truth winning and the lie losing, right? Um, so again, this becomes a major theme. What side of truth are you going to fall on? Um, so, but I would say to kind of summarize it, Overall, John is calling his readers to recognize the heavenly reality behind the earthly, right? To see from heaven's perspective, basically. Babylon and the dark power behind it in every age is not something to compromise with. We must trust in Jesus and the way of Jesus by testifying to the truth. John is convinced Jesus will return to judge evil and bring God's correct and holy rule on earth as in heaven. The two will become one dwelling place for God and his people who endured for the truth. So John is holding out this hope to the, the listeners that if you stand by, God is going to set things right. Don't think that God is just sitting by like um, just absent-minded or not thinking about what's going to happen next. But God has a purpose. He's going to work out all of this and evil will not have the final word. Nice. Any other thoughts? Oh no, I think I think you covered most of them. So yeah, when you read this book, you start noticing that God is not just this passive person who's just there and looking at everything that it's happening, but God is actively fixing the problem, is actively working uh, to address the problem, to address the actual issue that is happening. He's not coming and addressing, for example, if someone is corrupt, for example, my president is corrupt, he's not coming and address, addressing those things, but he's coming and addressing what is the big problem. What is the big problem? The pro big problem is the evil that is behind all the things that are happening on the earth. It's everything that is behind those things. Uh, that is the biggest problem. That is the thing that needs to be defeated. And that thing, God has a specific plan to defeat it and once it gets defeated all the evil problem is going to get solved so you have to see it in god's view god's view is just not coming and slow and solving literally small problems but it's coming and solving the problem has a whole so one thing you see in in these in the book is that god is not the one who's ruling the things is not the one who's guiding who's ruling the earth now is not the one who's ruling who's sending all these uh, earthquakes who's making the the ocean those big waves that big waves that become tsunami and kill all these people no god is not the one who's doing that but he has a solution for all these problems and he will come and make things right yeah i think that's a great way to end this section in the sense of that the, it's the dealing with evil that ultimately it's the lie from the very beginning is god's truth god's view of reality the best reality to live in and adam and eve were deceived by the same evil power that has continued to deceive people age after age empire after empire you know is god's truth 
the truth that we really want to believe, right? And uh, Revelation is the answer to that, that yes, those who live in God's truth, he is going to eventually remake creation and, in a sense, restore a new kind of Eden, right? So in this next section, we'll kind of go more through the chronological order of Revelation. We'll start at the throne room, go through the seven bowls, trumpets, talk a little bit about the beast, cryptic symbols, and then ultimately final judgment, and then the hope that we read in chapter 21, new heaven and new earth. Yes. All right, guys, we'll catch you after the break. All right, guys, we are back from the break, and uh, we're going to start off right away kind of going into the throne room scene that's found in Revelation. So in this scene, it's basically, uh, honestly, almost every time I read this scene, I start to tear up. It, you know, I'm not super sentimental, and my wife always makes fun of me that I don't really cry that much. But um, it's basically John gets put into, and I think it's important to note, this is a scene in Revelation. Not all scenes in Revelation are future, and I think this is a great example of seeing the heavenly reality behind what's happening on earth, right? So anyways, John's in this throne room, and basically the representative of humans, these 24 elders, and then all of creation, the various beasts with the different eyes, it's essentially symbolic language to say, here's all creation's representatives in God's throne room, worshiping God 24-7, right? Because he is worthy, again, uh, in opposition to Rome or any other, in opposition to the dark power that is claiming, trying to usurp God's power and his authority. Um, but just like how we ended the Old Testament section of our biblical story, there's this sense of like, is God's purpose going to go forward? So God's plan is kind of symbolized in this scroll that is sealed up with seven seals. And it says that heaven is, you know, kind of like, what's going to happen? God, how's your plan going to go forward? Because there is no, and again, we've talked about over and over and over again, God's purpose and intention has always been that his purposes are done through human beings, that that's how God operates. That's how he's chosen to put himself like he's put himself in the position that he will not bring his purposes forward without human beings interaction so revelation literally says there is no one no human that can bring god's purposes forward and john begins to weep right and i think the reason why i get really emotional i'm even thinking about it getting emotional is not only in the big narrative you know, the story of God's purposes, but how many people's lives have got to that place and they think, God, how can your plans, how can your purposes, how can your life go forward in me, right? I, I'm not worthy. I'm, I can't do this, right? I'm, there's, you just get this deep sense of like, yeah, things are broken. How is this going to go forward? And John weeps because he sees this. But then there's this just powerful moment where it says, but then there is, he saw the lamb that looked like he had been slain. It looks like this dead, slaughtered lamb, but this lamb is worthy, right? I, I debated between reading this passage and the, the future kingdom passage at the beginning of this, but it's such a powerful picture that John sees this lamb and all of heaven begins to say, he is worthy to break open the seals. And all of a sudden we recognize this lamb is Jesus, right? That Jesus is the truly human one that can bring God's purposes forward. He can break the seals. And so whether it's the big picture of God's ultimate purpose for creation 
or your personal life and story, there is someone who is able to bring it forward, to bring God's purposes forward because he is worthy, right? Uh, And I just think it's such a beautiful, amazing, just ingenious, you know, piece of scripture and writing and imagery that, you know, while we don't, maybe all that imagery doesn't mean everything to us, it's still relevant today and can move people. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And this image of the lamb is, as you said, is something, something really, really compelling that once you read it, that's where it takes you to start crying because you just see how, how God's plan is being unveiled. It was unveiled through Jesus Christ's death because the scroll, what, what's in those scrolls is how God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. So if no one were able to open that, then that means that probably no one would know what's the plan. No one would be able to. Because once the, the scroll is open, that's when you start seeing the sequence. I think we'll talk about them, the sequence of things happening. So if it was not open, and then the sequence of things that would bring the God's kingdom on earth then would not happen i think that's why even john cries because then if if that's not happening and then there is no hope there is no future there is no peace uh to come you're just gonna the evil is just gonna repeat repeat and continue to conquer the good uh plan of god but once there is someone who comes out and says yes i am worthy to open this i'm worthy to unveil and open and start the sequence of actions that needs to be taken needs to happen until the kingdom of god comes then the hope starts then you start like yes you know when someone scores a goal like this is this how we should feel when it comes to this so it was slay because with death it conquered that uh action that uh that worthiness of opening the scrolls and yeah yeah, and just to set this up i think we need to say this this passage starts another theme that we have to pay attention on in the sense of you have to pay attention in what John's hears here and what John see. Because for example, when he starts weeping, when he starts crying, he hear one of the twenty-four ancient old men saying, Don't cry, because here's is the the lion of Judah, the roots of David. You know? And but look what he sees when he turns and look, he sees a lamb. So three times in this book you will see that. Uh, John will hear something, but once he turns, he sees something different. And I think one of the big things that happens in when he hears about the 144,000 uh, army with all the tribes, that's what he hears. But once he turns and see, he sees all this arm of people from different nations, from different um, cultures coming together as the people of God. So that kills all this idea of no it's only the the tribes of 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 judah but because it's what he hears but then it's there's what he sees too and again you know these are numbers and pictures representing the restoration of what was lost as well but yeah so 
what's interesting is the seven seals begin this um, progressive movement of judgments. And I think what's really important when we talk about judgments, that we often see judgment in the negative, but essentially what's happening is evil is being judged now. And everyone who is compromising with evil, who's not willing to follow the truth, if God is a good God in a sense, he has to deal with evil and he has to deal with people who are compromising with evil to the point that they are unwilling to repent. And so part of God's purposes is now judgment of evil can begin so that the restoration of creation can begin, right? Because there can be no restoration without the dealing of evil. So yeah, we can dive into the seven seals if you want. Yes, I think about the seven seals, uh, the the first four, I think it's kind of straightforward with the, the horsemen and one it's a war, one goes and do the conquest and then we have famine and then we have death. And But then I think from the fifth, it's the fifth, right? Number five uh, seal, it's kind of where maybe we can focus more in the sense of that's when uh, we hear the cry out of the people's blood, the people who have been martyred and cries out to the Lord and say, hey, how long, Lord, will it take for you to come and judge? And then he says, rest a little longer. And then we have this scroll number six, where we have the day of the Lord, which is the representation of Isaiah. I think, I think we spoke about it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. This is the ultimate day of the Lord, where the whole day of the Lord, the God's wrath come and has this thunder and people. And I think it, there's a word earthquake and then people start running like, who can stand and the wrath of the Lord? And then he stops from there about the, the scrolls and then he answered this question who can stand the wrath of the lord and then that's when we have uh john uh, hearing about the 144 uh representing the vindication already restoration of the first uh, plan of god you can go di- you can dive deeper deeper on that but and then we have those people who can stand all the people who were martyred those people who is the messianic army and this whole people who are worthy and who are standing uh, in god's and i think again presence. we have to think this isn't just you know that if you took literally these judgments, like as the pictures that are happening are literally what's going to happen all the time, you know, the world wouldn't exist anymore. You get what I'm saying? So we have to understand what is happening here. It's a picture of people who are dying for the truth that are being vindicated versus wickedness. And I think part of judgment, what's important here is that evil produces these kinds of judgments like war, right? is a a result of evil and so in a sense evil's own power is going to crush itself Mm -hmm. in that it's the people of truth that are going to remain you know what i'm saying even though evil may try and snuff them out by taking evil and exhausting it onto themselves and god raising them from the dead evil has no more power over them and so after the seals are done there's the trumpets the trumpets again follow this kind of archetype of the judgments over exodus um very much so kind of taking that idea co-opting those thoughts um and then sorry i'm just looking at my notes here 
yeah, so John also is called to measure God's temple, just like Ezekiel is called to do so. And in a powerful imagery, the witness, the witnesses, the two witnesses, show their, their responsibility and power proclaiming the one God and his truth even to death, how God vindicates his witnesses by raising them from the dead. It, you know, some of this, the two may be echoes of Moses and Aaron being untouchable before Pharaoh. So the seventh trumpet leads to praise and worship of God's kingdom and the worldly kingdom's division has been defeated, right? So, uh, And also just to come with this, these two witnesses, because I just feel like this is one of the other places where sometimes it's been translated literally like yes there would be these two people who will uh, be standing but also when you look uh, those are represented as the lampstands you know yes. say has the church so those are represented as the church and i think so that's a really important note with revelations imagery there's so much of it going on that we kind of forget sometimes john tells us what the images are so he's told the churches, you are the lampstand. So then when he brings it back again, we have to understand John has already used this image and now he's putting it back in the story. Yes. Cool. So between that, there... Oh, oh, and, oh also, yeah, and also, this is where, after those two, that's when we have the repentance. Because uh, with the scrolls, we don't have a repentance. People just continue uh, with the five trumpet the first five trumpets and then we have get the, the fifth no one repents they continue to be to resist but then at the end and that's when when they die and they go back to god that's when they start glorifying giving glory to god and repent so sandwiched between the seven trumpets and the final seven plagues is the depiction of the dragon and the false prophet so Again, you know, this is John kind of depicting Rome, its imperial cult versus the Lord and witness Jesus and the Holy Spirit, right? So where there's the emperor and the cult um, as the Antichrist and his prophet, essentially, there's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So they, again, they're the parody of the spirit of truth in the real Lord of Lords. And, you know, this is highly debated stuff. This isn't, you know, I don't want to say that there aren't other thoughts and theories out there, Um but a lot of the cultural context makes sense when it's talking about Nero. Nero's new numerical number value is 666. He's one of the first emperors to proclaim persecution against Christians. Paul likely died under Nero. Um, he proclaimed himself son of God, Lord of Lords. You know, he sent out false prophets to fill these imperial cults. So there's a lot of parodies that are going on that John is probably picking up as an archetype to say, you know, the spirit of Antichrist is in every generation. And this is the, the generation that John and his witnesses are, are facing. Yes. And also, one thing is when we remember back in the Terranomius, I don't know how to say that in English, uh, the book, the Terranomius. Uh, yes. So that book uh, in Portuguese is the Terranomius. So I'll say that. So yeah, we in that book we have at six, chapter six we have the Shema, which is the prayer that Jewish people even today they start repeating, and this prayer is the prayer that they sh they should be memorizing. They, sh they were repeating, repeating it every single time, uh, in I think three times a day, and those so it represents this prayer that it's in people's mind, it's in people's forehead, it's in people's yeah. heart. So when these 666, when they come, this empire say you have to write those 
the number in your forehead is just saying that forget the Shema, forget the prayer. Now there is this person that you have to be worshiping. So that's another yeah. way of seeing that. Yeah, and again, yeah, the Shema and the marking on the hand, head and the hand was meant as symbolic imagery for something, right? Your action and your mind. And again, your action and your mind. Who is controlling your action and your mind? Is it Jesus or is it the spirit of this age? And I think a lot of people... You know, they're afraid of, am I going to get the mark of the beast or whatever? But really the question is, are you compromising and allowing the spirit of this age to control your mind, to control your actions? Or is it the spirit of truth that is the driving force of your thoughts and your actions, right? And unfortunately, that might be even scarier for people. You know what I mean? Um, So essentially, uh, we talked about Babylon the whore a little bit, and I don't think we need to bang that drum too much more, but... Essentially, John is putting out this scathing condemnation, right, of Rome and its power and its violence, how it's raped the nations and gotten drunk off of blood. And it's the ultimate example of evil being used by the dark power, right? Uh, And basically warnings that, like, one needs to remove oneself from that idolatry and not get entangled in that oppressive system, right? Don't. And what's so interesting is, He's basically saying, don't benefit from it. Don't even get involved in that. Like, live completely separately, even if it costs you. And how many people I feel like that I know, or even in my own life, where I've said, well, this is just the way things are, so I guess I'll do it. You know what I mean? Even if I know it's wrong, and John is warning his listeners, don't do that, right? Don't compromise with evil or the systems that have been placed by evil. But there's a totally different way of being human that you need to practice. But anyways, the church can rejoice now because Babylon will not get away with what is done. Judgment will come. The language used of Babylon's fall is very much the imagery of a siege, right? The city is burning in eternal fire and just being destroyed, which actually ultimately ends up happening to Rome. That It's sacked. It's destroyed by the Visigoths. Um, and it's just another form of judgment against you know, compromising with evil, that it will not last forever. So judgment of the nations, again, biblical judgment is putting things right, not letting oppressive powers get away unscathed. And in a sense, there's the final defeat of evil, Christ's return. The beast cannot stand against him. Jesus doesn't have to fight. It's the word of his mouth, his testimony, his testifying to the truth that defeats evil, which is, again, symbolic of what has happened on the cross as well as what God will do in the future. That same truth will defeat evil ultimately. So thrown into the lake of fire, again, this is symbolic imagery for eternal separation from the creator of people who have resisted until the last. It's shocking imagery, right? Meant to stand against the horrors of Rome. It's meant to be this shocking, powerful language that the listener would say, wow, okay, like God takes evil seriously, right? Um, That this is a permanent ordeal. There is no going back from it. Um, then John, the nice thing is revelation from the dealing with evil now focuses on a future home for God's people. For those who have stood from the truth, evil has been dealt with. Jesus has defeated his enemies. Now the promised kingdom can come in full. And this is where we get the image of the new Jerusalem, right? So there is kind of the, it's hotly debated, even everything that I looked at with the millennial reign. What does it mean? Like, What's going on there? Is it literal? Is it figurative? Honestly, like the main focus is that evil is ultimately defeated and bound away forever. That's that's the point, you know, like 
I'm not going to say any sort of position or take any strong position because ultimately, I don't <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and different denominations have their different opinions, and I think that's fine, right? It's kind of whatever you feel like is more convincing to you. I don't know if you want to share on it at all. or No, I'm not taking a position okay, too on this. Yeah, I think what you said, it's 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 the ultimate thing that we should focus on uh it's what comes after that is what comes after that is there's the ultimate defeat of evil and then from there we just have the ultimate promise of god and god returning and the marriage and i will talk about after this so yeah um if either you want to say yes we it's gonna be a thousand year that the the people of God would be ruling, or it's gonna be, or it's just any any representation of that. I don't think that changes the final goal. Just to reiterate, you know, we've talked a lot about cultural context and Rome and all that stuff, but the reality is there is future promises that John is presenting. In the ultimate dealing with evil is one of them, but the greatest promise that he gives is this new heavens and new earth, right? And we read the opening section of it at the beginning of this podcast, but it is the epic conclusion, right? And the beginning of something brand new is this idea that the new Jerusalem, the city, which has often been a a tool to disobey God, now becomes the city from heaven, right? It is the garden city. It is Eden reborn anew. Um, and it descends like the bride coming to its bridegroom, right? And you can now see that God will now permanently dwell with his people. So the tabernacle, the temple, um, these were all symbols of God's dwelling place among his people. But now God himself, no temple. It says there's no temple in the city. There's no wall or there's no... Um, no uh, bar on the gates, right? People can come in, in and out freely. God will be at its center. He is the light. There's no need for the sun anymore because God is the source of life, right? There's the rivers of life that are flowing in, the trees of life that will be healing for the nations. It's all this imagery from Eden reborn again, right? And this is the promised hope that when evil is ultimately dealt with, not that um, earth is going to disappear. It talks about it does say disappear, but the old earth and the old heavens will disappear, meaning the old way of creation is now gone. There's a completely new reality to inhabit. But I think what's really important to understand is this is a physical reality. It is a resurrected from the dead reality. It is God's realm and space heaven coming to the new earth, the restored earth. So it isn't like, you know, Oftentimes when we think of Christian hope, it's this disembodied, we're going to be like ghosts somewhere with God. But in reality, God is going to raise everyone from the dead like he did Jesus. And like Jesus, who is both comfortable on earth and in heaven, the new reality in which all people will be reborn is a earth plus heaven reality where both realms coexist at the same time. There is no more barrier between us and God. There is no more veil. We are all unveiled, which is ultimately what Revelation is, right? The unveiling of God's purposes, but also the unveiling of the heaven and earth reality that heaven and earth were always meant to exist by, right? Yes, and I think you put it right. Uh, I think that's one thing that we have to move away from as Christians, the idea of us spending eternity in heaven in this place, as you said, this embodied place, place where 
we don't have bodies on our spirit. I don't think, well, I revelation shows us that that's not exactly what is going to happen. Yeah. That's not our ultimate or our final destination. But the final destination is this marriage of heaven and earth. The return of Eden to earth where so we have that we don't have this place where we go among the clouds and we stay there and then start jumping among the clouds yes maybe maybe uh but yeah so it's this garden of eden coming back to earth and this new jerusalem this new city the idea of city that you said city was this place of worshiping other gods but then now it becomes this place of uh worshiping god this place that you you worship god so we see you know from page one we talked about this as the biblical story that page one and you know the final page are tied together with this beautiful poetic bow of what god's intention really has been the entire time and even the idea of the exodus narrative right god leading his people out of slavery out of death out of um egypt by condemning egypt and its wrongful treatment of god's people with the plagues by having the passover lamb that has covered the doorpost, right? That's made the way for the people of Israel to escape through the death and the blood of the Passover lamb, which is Jesus. And now he's brought them out and called them to the tabernacle, his place, his dwelling place among his people. So again, there's all these themes from Exodus that are getting picked up. There's scenes as well, you know, with Babylon, Rome, the Tower of Babel, were always just parodies about what God ultimately wanted to do. They were cities that tried to rule like God, but by all the wrong means, right? But now the New Jerusalem is the city ruled by God himself, and it is the place of life, the healing for the nations. It says the nations will come and be healed by, you know, the the leaves from the tree of life. And so where Rome brought death and destruction wherever it went, the kingdom of God brings life and healing and peace wherever it goes. So kind of in conclusion, I feel like the kind of the two things that I, I feel like Revelation can really leave us as modern day readers with is this. It's our task to live as prophetic witnesses to Jesus, summoning people to believe and follow him, speaking truth to power and declaring the judgments of God against all wickedness, right? We live as testimonies, as the people of God, to witness to the truth in our own day. Where are the places that the evil um, powers that you know sat behind Rome 2,000 years ago, where are they today? destroying people's lives for the sake of money, destroying people's lives for the sake of power, um, and getting drunk off of the blood of innocent people. And we are called to speak God's truth, that this isn't the way that it's meant to be. John also calls us to resist thinking of our state, right? State as in whatever power rules over us, as a godlike entity that can rescue us, right? How many times have we said, if we could just vote in this person, or we could, it's the modern democratic way, but like, if we could just get our policies through, then everything would be fine. But he says, to resist those cultural lies, right? To embrace heaven's truth of reality, to work for the kingdom of Jesus over and against ruling power, to recognize that at the center of all of it, is the lamb who is worthy to be praised, right? And so it's a call at the end of the day to recognize who is the actual real authority behind the reality that we live in. And are we really testifying to his truth, his way of life? Are we really walking in that? And like the seven churches, are we compromising? Are we struggling? Are we you know, faced with having to go back to our first love? Wherever we're at, um, 
let us remember who really is in charge and who's going to help us conquer in the end and what the reward is for that. Reader, well, we, not reader, uh, listener. So yeah, we suggest you to go back with all these knowledge that you have, go back and read the book of Revelation and put those glasses on because I just feel like Revelation, it's giving you these glasses that you put on and you start looking at everything that's going on around you, everything that is going on now that is will keep continuing until Jesus Christ jesus christ return so go back to this book and put those glasses on and make a choice you have a choice are you going to be this big harvest of the grain that jesus christ come and harvest or are you going to be the grapes that are being harvested to the wrath of god that are going to be smashed by the wrath of god so this is the big choice if you're going to be a good harvest and then you have to win and how do you win you win by being against everything every rules that uh, guiding this earth and by if needed dying or what jesus says carrying your cross and winning the victory that's how you win by resisting all the evil or you lose or you're gonna win here on earth by being part of of all the systems by being uh Play, play a role on all the evil that exists but then at the end of the day that's losing because you'll be smashed you'll be the grapes that are going to be smashed in the wrath of god so yeah i feel like this is the big uh, invitation and the big goal of this book uh, of revelation and in general i feel like this is a perfect book because it closes it gives a it starts in genesis it starts with all this mess up and then you go you see you see all the books of the old testament just mess up mess up mess up and then you see jesus christ coming and bringing the salvation bringing the hope starting this walk this walk to the promised land these you you get baptized and you start walking to the promised land and then we have this book of um of revelation that comes and reveals what is gonna happen and closes up the book that the first plan it's not gonna be scrapped up it's not gonna left behind it's not something different which is heaven that's it's not like the heaven is where we're gonna spend our whole life but the first plan of god it's gonna happen and this book comes and closes that with this amazing hope in these last two chapters 22 and 23 yeah it's a transformational way of viewing how we can live our current reality right how we can begin to walk in the kingdom of God and think differently about what God has for us. Um, but yeah, readers, this has been... Readers, you have me stuck on that now. Listeners. <laughs> yeah, we've been reading so much to prepare for this podcast. That So I think um, with this, our biblical story series comes to an end. I'm sure it's prompted a lot of questions, a lot of thoughts in you guys, and we would love to hear your feedback. You know, we'll put a Q&A reminder at the end of this episode, but send them in. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear um, how you're processing, and don't forget that uh, in our next episode, we'll talk about how do we kind of continue the story in our own lives, right? So we've concluded the biblical narrative. Um, but the story doesn't end there, right? We have a part to play, and how can we live that out today? So I hope that this helps encourage you guys to read your Bible well, to have a new perspective on it, and to think, how can you live out this story as well? All right, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for being part of this trip. Era.